You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. But most people's favorite conversational subject these days seems to be politics. And this morning, as we continue in Matthew's Gospel, we come to one of the most important passages in the whole Bible about the relationship between the believer, our faith, and the government. And I hope that this morning we're going to see exactly what God expects of us in our interactions with the state and him. So if you've got a Bible, again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22 this morning, and I do encourage you, if you have a paper Bible or if you can use one of the few Bibles, it's good to actually stick your nose in the book. Let's be in Matthew 22 this morning, and today we're going to look at verses 15 through 22. And today we're going to see two points. First, we're going to see a general principle that Jesus establishes which explains how his people should relate to the state and to God. And then second, we're going to explore this principle by asking three questions that I think will help us understand it and apply it. So let's start with our first point. Here we're just going to see this general principle Jesus gives about how his people should relate to the government and to God. It's the final week of Jesus' ministry, and he has finally come to Jerusalem. And you might remember he entered the city with much fanfare, openly showing himself to be the Messiah, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy by riding on a donkey into town. And as he does this, the religious pilgrims who have come for the Passover acclaim him very loudly. But after this triumphant scene, Jesus' subsequent actions in the city have proven quite controversial. Jesus went to the temple And he shut down the commercial market where the religious pilgrims were being exploited. He then performed some miracles in the temple, healing the disabled. And after doing so, he accepted praise and worship from those who saw his miracles over the objections of some of the religious elites who were standing by. And these controversial acts have now precipitated an ultimate showdown between the Lord Jesus and the highest-ranking religious elites in Jerusalem. And and what we've been looking at the last few weeks and will continue to look at through January is the climax to a conflict that we've seen throughout this whole book. Now, back in chapter 5, Jesus said, Israel's religious leaders were hypocrites who lacked the righteousness necessary to enter God's kingdom. And for their part, beginning in chapter 9, the Jewish religious elites have antagonistically persecuted Jesus. And since then, we have seen many encounters Jesus had with these elites, whether they were local religious leaders from Galilee or delegations sent from Jerusalem to track him down and discredit him. But time and again, Jesus has prevailed over every challenge. Until here we are in the temple In chapter 21, when Jesus is confronted by members of the Sanhedrin, the council that wielded supreme authority over Judaism in the first century. 
In chapter 21, you might remember that the chief priests and the elders of the people, the representatives of the Sanhedrin, come to Jesus and they challenge his authority. And they try to discredit him with a little rhetorical sleight of hand. But we saw in our last two sermons how Jesus responded. First, he asked a simple question back to the Sanhedrin that totally exposed their insincerity and their fear of people rather than God. And then Jesus told three parables that revealed the character of the religious elites who opposed him. Parables that exposed how they had failed to do God's will because they would not repent of their sins. Parables that revealed their evil intentions to kill the Son of God. And these parables were both a prophecy and a warning to the Sanhedrin to turn aside from this disastrous course that they had set themselves upon. But they rejected Jesus' warning and plotted how to arrest him. So the first round goes to Jesus. But this climactic debate is not yet over. In fact, it's just warming up. Because even though the Sanhedrin has struck out, now a number of other groups of elites seize their opportunity to take their best shot at Jesus. And in our passage, we see the next such attempt. And it begins like this. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Who are the Pharisees? Well, in first century Judaism, there was a diversity of religious belief, just like within Christianity today. We've got all these denominations that don't agree with one another. Well, in Judaism back then, there were similar factions. And in fact, these factions were probably more like political parties than denominations because they vied for power and control over Judaism with one another. Now, the Pharisees were the most influential and popular party among the common people of that day. And the reason that the Pharisees were so popular is that they were seen as being very holy and sincere followers of God. And they enjoyed this reputation for a few reasons. First, they were great at self-promotion. You might remember back in chapter 6, Jesus says they always draw attention to themselves by blowing a trumpet when they give money to the poor, pray in the street corner, so everybody will see them and say, oh, how pious. Second, they had the advantage of being the primary opponents of the Sadducees. Now, we'll talk about the Sadducees next week, but for now, let me just say, they were very unpopular with the common people because they were rich, they were powerful, and they were well-known for being worldly and corrupt. And so lots of people would naturally gravitate towards the Pharisees just because they saw how bad the Sadducees were. Third, the Pharisees were very clever scholars and they were skilled in rhetoric and debate. They were persuasive folks. But while the Pharisees enjoyed this reputation for intellectual distinction and personal holiness, Jesus has shown in this book how they are false, how they have twisted the scriptures to allow what God had forbidden, how they have manipulated and preyed upon the opinions of people without fearing God, how they have been hypocrites, saying one thing while doing another, pretending to a righteousness they don't really possess. And because Jesus has exposed them so thoroughly, the Pharisees have been the main antagonist to Jesus throughout this whole book. And now, the highest-ranking Pharisees gather together, once more hoping to vanquish Jesus, who has laid bare their sins. And unsurprisingly, once more they resort to their favorite tactic, 
They're going to try and play a word trap on Jesus, hoping to publicly discredit him. In fact, back in chapter 12, we read, some of the Pharisees wanted to destroy, they wanted to kill Jesus. So that's the big goal here. They want to trick Jesus into saying something that they can accuse him of being treasonous or blasphemous and get him the death penalty. So what do they do? Well, verse 16. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. The Pharisees' scheme involves them tag-teaming with another faction from ancient Judaism, the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? Well, we don't know much about them because we never find this term anywhere outside the Bible. And they appear in only three passages of the Gospels. And in each of these passages, very little is ever said about them. So what I'm going to say here is a little speculative, but I think it is defensible. The Herodians are named for the House of Herod, which was a royal dynasty that held political power over the Jews over the previous 70 years. At one time, the Herods had ruled over all of Israel. At this point, members of the Herod family held titles of kingship only in Galilee to the north and some regions across the River Jordan to the northeast. Now, these kingships were puppet kingships. Rome was really in charge. But the Herods had a famous name, a lot of clout, and deep connections with Rome. Now, it stands to reason that the Herodians, named for Herod, advocated the interests of the Herods, which would mean they were pro-Roman. Now, what's really interesting here is the Pharisees were an ultra-nationalistic anti-Gentile group, and the Herodians were a pro-Roman group. What are these guys doing hanging out together? They hated each other. Well, as the saying goes, politics makes strange bedfellows. And why do they find common cause? Well, Luke 13 says that Herod Antipas, the puppet king of Galilee, wanted to kill Jesus. And that's what the Pharisees wanted too. You know, it's interesting in this world, no matter where you go, you will always find opposition to Jesus. Whether it's here in the secular West, or it's in the Islamic world, or in India where there's militant Hinduism, or in communist countries in Asia or the Americas, people who radically disagree about all kinds of things all happen to just agree on one thing, which is they hate Jesus and they hate his people. So it was in the first century. The Pharisees team up with the Herodians. Now, for the sake of simplicity, we're going to call this group of Pharisees and Herodians who challenge Jesus the conspirators, okay? So the conspirators come, and here's what they say, verse 16. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God faithfully, or truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Now, when we hear what these guys have to say at first, we may find ourselves agreeing with it. And we should, because Jesus is true. I mean, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is the truth. There is no falsehood in him. First Peter 2 says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And not only is Jesus true, but what he tells us is true. He does teach the way of God truthfully. In John 18, Jesus said to Pilate, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. 
And indeed, the conspirators are right when they say that Jesus does not care about anyone's opinion, for he is not swayed by appearances. Jesus doesn't play politics. He doesn't play favorites. He is impartial. doesn't matter whether you're rich and powerful in this world or if you're poor. He will treat us all the same because he lives to please an audience of just one, his father. John 8, 29, he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So what the conspirators say here is correct. And yet, this is not a profession of faith. And Matthew hints at this by recording the fact that they call Jesus teacher. You know, throughout Matthew's gospel, anytime anybody approaches Jesus simply as a teacher, we find out very quickly that their approach is an approach of unbelief. Because in Matthew, the people who believe in Christ uniformly refer to Jesus not merely as a teacher, but as Lord. So the conspirators here are not trying to compliment Jesus. No, they are saying these things to flatter Jesus. Because this is part of their trap, and we'll see that in just a minute. But now they present the tricky question that they think is going to bring Jesus down. Verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a big debate in first century Judaism. After all, Caesar was the emperor of Rome. And Rome was an occupying power dominating the Jews. And Rome charged a variety of taxes. They taxed the Jews heavily. And then they used those monies to keep on oppressing the Jews. You can see why Jews would say, hey, I don't want to pay any more taxes to these oppressors. Moreover, the coins that were used to pay these taxes were called denarii. And each denarius was imprinted with an image of the face of Caesar and bore an inscription, which on one side read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side read, Pontifex Maximus, confessing the emperor to be the high priest. So there was some thinking in first century Judaism that using or even touching these coins was itself sin because it contained a graven image of the emperor, which violated the second commandment, because it confessed a false god, the emperor, which violated the first commandment, and because it called the emperor high priest rather than the high priest of Israel. Now, with this background, it's not hard to see what's going to happen here if Jesus says, yes, we Jews should pay taxes to Caesar. The Pharisees, who are nationalists, will say, you've betrayed your people to the occupiers, and you're guilty of idolatry and blasphemy. And they'll try to get him put to death for this. But what will happen if Jesus says, no, we Jews should not pay taxes to Caesar? Well, the Pharisees won't complain about that, but the pro-Roman Herodians will. They're going to say, hey, Jesus, you're guilty of sedition and treason, and take him before the Romans. Now we see why these two groups are cooperating. Because they figured, whichever way Jesus answers this question, one of the groups or the other can accuse him of a death penalty offense. And now that we see how this scheme works, we can also understand why they start by flattering Jesus the way they did. Saying, oh, you always speak the truth. And you never show favoritism. It's a setup. Because if Jesus hears the question and says, hey, you guys are trying to trap me. They're going to say, what's the matter, Jesus? Can't you just give us a truthful answer? Are you playing favorites between us or the Herodians? See, it's all a setup. It's all very clever and subtle. However Jesus answers, they imagine, he will lose. 
There's just one problem, friends. You can't play games with God and win. And Jesus is gone. And now these guys' scheme blows up in their faces. Look at verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? He isn't taken in by this. He sees what's happening, and he calls it out. And so often Jesus gives us a great example of how to respond to manipulation by just calling it out honestly and directly. So while these guys have come to him with these words of flattery, while secretly hoping to destroy him, Jesus says, this is a game and you guys are actors and this is more hypocrisy. It's more false righteousness. But now Jesus shows how different he is from these guys because he answers their question without stooping to their level, without playing a game or running a manipulation. And with his sincerity, he silences them. Look at verse 19. So he says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Immediately, this disarms any ability for the Pharisees to say Jesus is a blasphemer for using a Roman coin. Because the conspirators themselves are carrying some of these coins. So they cannot accuse Jesus without exposing themselves of the same charge they want to level at him. Verse 20. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Well, this isn't how the conspirators drew this up. They thought they're going to make Jesus answer their question. Now suddenly Jesus is the one asking the questions. And his question is so straightforward. There's no possibility they can wiggle their way out of it. Whose picture is this? Everybody standing there knew the answer. Caesar's, they have to reply. And so now Jesus gives his judgment on the question of paying taxes. Verse 21. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. See, the coin bears Caesar's image and inscription. It identifies itself as belonging to the domain of the state. So if the state wants to charge taxes, paying the state back its own money is a reasonable thing to do. It's profound logic. And it's also really provocative because Jesus then makes another statement about giving to God what belongs to God. And we're going to talk about these ideas a lot more in just a moment. But the immediate impact of Jesus' statement is it totally disarms these guys and ends the plot. Look at verse 22. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. How do you answer Jesus? You can't. They lose. They leave. Right? But what does Jesus mean when he says, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's? Well, that's what I want to spend our, our remaining time on as we come now to our second point. And I'm hoping that we're going to ask three questions here that will help us understand and apply this principle. First, how should we understand the state and its relationship to God's kingdom? Second, what must we render to Caesar? And third, what must we render to God? So first, how should we understand the relationship between the state and God's kingdom? A lot of Christians seem today to think of the state as something that is diametrically opposed to God, as a force of unrelenting antagonism, a problem that must always be resisted. You know, that isn't how the Bible talks about government. Now, to be sure, Psalm 2 tells us that the kings of the world and the elites rage against God. And Matthew 10 says kings and governors will persecute believers. But we need to remember government did not begin as a problem created by evil people. No, government was a solution created by God to correct human evil. 
Earlier today, we read from Genesis 9 that after the flood, which was a judgment on the fact that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, God begins society again. And now God gives Noah this instruction, Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. That's the start of human government. That's a criminal law requiring humans to police other humans. Government was God's idea. And I think that's very important to remember. Because many American Christians, in, in particular as of late, seem to have gravitated towards a sort of libertarianism that frankly borders on soft anarchy. A government can't tell me what to do. I have freedoms, you know. I can do whatever I want. Friends, I would warn you against this anti-governmental view by reminding you of the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is not a positive analysis of the human condition. The absence of effective government in Israel it did allow for maximum human freedom, and that led to maximum sin. The chapters leading up to that statement show us brutality, rape, murder, idolatry, and civil war are rampant where there is not some means of curbing iniquity. Friends, government is a hedge against the anarchy of sin. It is a means by which God constrains evil. We're going to see Paul makes this point very clearly in just a minute. Now, in the Old Testament, God worked through the nation of Israel. And God gave Israel his law, and he gave them a form of government that was bound up with his worship and his law. And Israel had to keep the law to continue living in God's promised land. But, and this is very important, things are different in the church age. In the church age, God doesn't just work through one nation. And God never mandates that Christians should try to create an explicitly Christian government or try to enforce the Old Testament law on anybody. You might remember in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I fulfilled the law. Jesus decides what the commands are for the church age. It's not the Old Testament law. And I've got to stress this point because in recent years, there has been a growing trend within various parts of Christianity in this country that advocate a sort of fusion of our faith with the state. Now this is not a new idea. The idea that Christianity should be an explicitly political force came from the Roman Empire in the fourth century. And it continued through medieval Catholicism and the horrible wars of religion in the 17th century. And it continues today even in Europe in some of the state churches. Now I make this historical point because if you know anything about church history, you will recognize that each of these things I just described worked out terribly for Christian witness and the integrity of the gospel. The Roman emperors who said we're now a Christian state, they brought in the Arian heresy which denied the deity of Christ. Medieval Catholicism rejected salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for a religion of works. And modern European state churches have been a bastion of theological liberalism. Friends, the commingling of Christianity with political power does not lead to the enhancement of the gospel. It leads to its corruption. It leads to heresy. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because Jesus told Pilate in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. 
Friends, yes, one day Jesus will reign over the globe when he returns the second time and conquers. But friends, Jesus alone will inaugurate that kingdom. It is not the mission of the church to politically conquer the globe and set up some kind of government. The kingdom that Jesus inaugurated in his first appearing and the mission that he has given to the church is not for us to exercise political dominion. It is for us to spread the gospel one conversion at a time, not by seeking power at the ballot box. And if you have questions about that, look at the way Jesus frames this discussion in Matthew 22. He explicitly contrasts the domain of Caesar from the domain of God. They are not the same. So in the church age, friends, we should not expect uh, this total overlap or fusion of church and state. We should expect there will be a distinction between our faith and the secular government. For this reason, we explicitly deny as heresy in this church the false doctrine of theonomy, that the Old Testament law is the basis for government in the church age. We expressly deny as heresy the false doctrines of Christian nationalism and dominionism. The idea that the mission of the church is to win control over the seven mountains of culture. Government, education, media, art, religion, family, and business. And so forth the second coming. That is false, friends. And there are many influential people, uh, not just in this nation, but in this state who believe that. We expressly deny post-millennialism that it is for the church to bring about the kingdom of God in its fullness. Friends, the church age is not about us creating a new theocracy. There is a distinction between the domain of God and the domain of Caesar. But now, this leads to our second question, which is what do we owe Caesar? What are our obligations to the secular government? The New Testament has a lot to say about this question, and I think there's basically five things we owe the state. First, we owe the state our qualified obedience. So what's that mean? That means we don't owe the state our absolute obedience. Only God gets our absolute obedience. Only God uh, are we required to obey 100% of the time. There's never a scenario where disobeying God is okay. But there are times where disobeying the state is biblically permitted and even required. Now, this idea of disobeying the state gets a lot of us excited and I understand that, but before we start talking about that, I think it's good for us to hear the general rule, which is obedience to the state. So listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them, he's telling a pastor to remind his church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. We're to submit to the state. And that's the same verb we find in passages about uh, how workers or slaves should obey their masters. How, uh, in one case, how a child should obey his parents. Or how a wife should obey her husband in the, in the con context of the home. Now, thank God we don't have slavery anymore. But most of us would agree Christians should be good workers at, at the office. They should submit to their boss. Most of us, hopefully all of us, would recognize children should submit to their parents. Many of us would readily recognize that the Bible says in the home that husbands are to lead and wives are to subject themselves to their husband's leadership. But while we accept biblical wisdom in all of these other areas, why are we so quick to resist the Bible's instruction that we ought to subject ourselves to the state? And we're told this again and again. Friends, our general posture towards the government should be obedience. 
Now, that's true not just about the highest levels of government. That's true about any governing figure that has authority over us. 1 Peter 2.13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. I know a lot of the time we say, oh, I want to know what God's will is for my life. Here's one place where the Bible tells us we should submit to every human institution from the emperor on down, Peter says. Or in our context, we would say federal government, state government, and local government. But why? Why should we obey the state? Well, for the Lord's sake. Because of our love and relationship to Christ. For his cause and to maintain a good testimony for the gospel. Paul explains this a bit more as he uh, elaborates on the relationship between God and government in Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Friends, we are to submit ourselves to government because government is something God has ordained. God has given structure in this world. God created government. And more than that, God has raised up every individual leader who has authority over us. Every president, every judge, every congressman, every dog catcher. And these people, Romans 13 says, are in fact servants of God. Romans 13, 6 calls them ministers of God. That's not usually how we think about our leaders. But God has given them a ministry. To bring about good in our society by avenging and deterring evil. So friends, to disobey the state is to resist God's will. It is to resist God's ministers. It is to harm society. It is to incur legal jeopardy. And most severely, it courts God's wrath, according to Romans 13.5. That's not a small matter. Now we might say, well, you know, Paul doesn't understand how bad our leaders are. He didn't have to deal with Biden or Trump or Obama or whoever. Friends, when Paul wrote these words, the Roman emperor was a guy called Nero. I could tell you with great certainty Nero was a lot worse than any leader we've ever had in the history of this country. Now, the instruction to submit to the state is not contingent on our estimate of our leader's competence or quality or virtue or policy. It is a general instruction to every believer. Our general disposition towards the state should be obedience. Second, we owe the state our good citizenship. 1 Peter 2.15 says, This is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The freedom we have is not an anarchic freedom to do whatever we want. Friends, we are always to reflect God's goodness and leave a good testimony for Christ before everybody. You know, the world always wants to malign the people of God. It would be best if we shut their mouths by our godly, obedient conduct. And it would be awful if instead we give the world legitimate grounds to complain about us. 
because we don't act as good, responsible citizens who care about our society. Friends, we need to remember, Jeremiah 29.7 tells the Israelites that they need to seek the welfare of the land where they are. That same principle applies to us, friends. We need to be good citizens. Now, in this society, that means we can engage in political advocacy. We should vote. And however we conduct ourselves in the political sphere, we need to consider the welfare of those around us and how to better the state. Because in a very real sense, as the state does well, we do well. Friends, living in a war-torn, crime-ridden place is not a pleasant experience. And it isn't going to lead to a lot of gospel fruit, most likely. So we should want the prosperity of our society. And Jeremiah, in fact, says that's something God's people should pray for. And Paul later says the same thing. And this is the third thing that we owe the state. Our prayers to God for its leaders. 1 Timothy 2 says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Friends, we should pray for our leaders to do well no matter who they are, because as they rule well, we will enjoy a peaceful and quiet life. That's a good thing. And not only are we to pray for their wisdom, we are to pray for their salvation, because that is something that pleases God. Praying for the salvation of others, including our leaders. But not only are we to pray for our leaders, the fourth thing we owe them is honor. We're to speak well of them. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor the emperor. Now this might be the single most disrespected command in the entire New Testament. I know how often I have spoken disrespectfully about leaders I don't like. And I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that. I often see even in churches, Christians talking badly about our leaders. Sometimes it happens in pulpits. And again, it's no defense to say, well, our leaders are so bad, it's okay to dishonor them. Because again, when Peter says, honor the emperor, he's talking about Nero, who became a madman and a murderer and a persecutor of Christians. Nero had Peter killed, and yet Peter says, honor Nero. And if he could say that, then friends, we need to honor our leaders too. Now, that doesn't mean we always have to agree with them or support what they do. It doesn't mean that we can't disagree even quite vocally. But friends, it does mean we've got to talk, watch how we talk about our leaders. We've got to ask, how do you talk about our leaders in front of the next generation? What are your kids learning about honoring authority? But we've got to remember, James chapter 3, verse 9 says, With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Friends, how do we use our speech? What does it reveal about our hearts? Remember earlier in this book, Matthew 15, Jesus says, what comes out of our mouths shows what our heart condition is. Maybe some of us need to do some repenting in this area. So we need to honor our leaders in our state. And then finally, we need to honor the government with our tax money. That is the fifth thing we owe the state. And that is most directly what Jesus is talking about in our passage. Because the state issues money, it has the right to require that we should return some of our money to it in the form of taxes. That's a part of the domain of government. Paul makes this same point in his famous passage in Romans 13 about government. He says, because of this, because we're subject to the state, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, their duties to secure society. 
paid all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, honor to honor whom honor is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed. Because our leaders are appointed by God, because they're tasked with maintaining public order, we should pay our taxes. And Paul uses a variety of terms here that refer to various taxes Rome put on their subjects. And he says all these taxes should be paid by Christians. So friends, we should not cheat our taxes. We should pay what the government says we owe. Because the state comes from God and its leaders are appointed by God. So we must comply with its edict. Now, we've talked about what we owe Caesar, right? Our honor, our taxes, our obedience, and, and so forth. But that's not the end of the passage, because there is one last thing we've got to talk about. Jesus has rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's, but he also says render to God what is God's. What is God's? What do we owe God? Well, let's think for a moment about how Jesus developed his argument. He says, look at a coin whose image is on the coin. And it's Caesar's, and so therefore the coin belongs to Caesar and the tax money. Well, by the same logic, we might ask what belongs to God. That is to say, where does God's image appear? It's on you and me, isn't it? And Genesis 1 says God created man in his own image. And even after the fall, even after we took on the likeness of fallen Adam, in Genesis 9, where God establishes government, he still says, for God made man in his own image. We are still the image bearers of God. And so just as those coins bearing Caesar's image showed that they belong to the domain of Caesar, friends, we who bear God's image belong to the domain of God. And God has the right to make demands on us that we render our bodies and minds and lives to him. Friends, God's demand on us is total. In Matthew 5:48, Jesus says, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a high standard. And in Matthew 5, he tells us that's not just about our outward deeds. That's not just about murder, adultery, revenge, and so forth. He says that it's even about our inner lives. We're not to be marked by sinful anger or lust or hate. We fail that standard, don't we? And Jesus says in Matthew 5, that's not a small problem. He says, whoever says you fool is liable to the hell of fire. That's a big problem. But there's good news. But Jesus explained back in chapter 20 when he said that he came not to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came into this world. God the eternal son took on humanity to render a service, to die on a cross, to make a ransom payment for many people. Friends, Jesus paid the debt we could not pay. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake God made him who knew no sin to be sin that in him we might be the right, be, be, become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He paid the penalty our sin deserves, and he gives the believer his own perfect righteousness so that we can be reconciled to God, that we can be adopted into his family, that we can survive his judgment, that we can dwell with him forever. And I have to tell you this. Friends, this is great news, but it's only true for those of us who respond to Jesus appropriately. God, who has the right to make demands on us, since we belong to him and bear his image, says we've got to respond to his son with repentant faith. In Jesus' first sermon, Matthew 4, 17, he says this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friends, we need to repent. We need a change of mind that becomes a change of life. Because we are all born as slaves of sin. 
Matthew 6.13 says, The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And that's where we all start, isn't it? We're all doing what we want to do when we want to do it, and we are on the broad road to hell. But Jesus says the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Friends, to be saved, to inherit eternal life, we've got to get off the broad road. We've got to make a U-turn. We've got to turn to Jesus in faith, believing that he is God and man, trusting ourselves to his death and resurrection. We've got to follow Jesus. That's what God demands. And that's not the end of God's demand. Because the command to repent in Jesus' first sermon is presented in a Greek verbal tense that speaks of ongoing action. It's like Martin Luther said. The whole Christian life is a life of repentance. And so repentance is not simply a one-time act of how we initially meet God through Christ. No, what God wants is a life entirely yielded to him. Friends, God is owed our highest, exclusive, absolute allegiance and obedience. And that's a major theme in this book. In this book, we've seen that we cannot divide our loyalty. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Friends, we must serve God above all else. And this is true to the degree that Jesus says in Matthew 10. We've got to put him above our closest family relationships. He says in Matthew 10, we've got to be willing to be killed for him. In fact, Jesus has told us repeatedly in this book that following him will cost us everything. Matthew 16, 24, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a high cost. And yet we should pay that cost and follow him nonetheless. Friends, what do we owe God? What must we render to God? All, all that is in us, all that we are and have and do and think. Paul says this in Romans 12:1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The worship God is entitled to from us is not that we sing four songs and listen to a long sermon every Sunday. What God is entitled to is that all the time, all our actions, all our thoughts should be dedicated to being lived in a manner that pleases Him. That is the response that is owed for Christ's great gift. He gave all for us. We must give all for Him. Now Jesus will put it like this later in this chapter, chapter 22, verse 37 of Matthew. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. This is what we owe God. And we will all fall short. But God is gracious to us, right? But we've got to know this is what he calls on us to do. Because of this, we can say, as our church's teaching statement does, that God is entitled to all of our reverence, awe, honor, trust, obedience, love, and worship. And I want to say to some of us here today, Daniel preached this last week from Psalm 118. I want to say it today too. Our supreme hope and trust must not be in men. It must not be in political parties. It must not be in the state. Friends, politics is not to be our God, just as money is not to be our God, just as leisure is not to be our God. Only God is ultimate and deserves our highest allegiance. And because of that, we owe him our absolute loyalty. We must always obey him. And that's why our loyalty to the state is qualified. 
Because when there is direct conflict between the state and God, we must disobey the state because we must obey God. The Bible's clear about this. In Acts 4, the Sanhedrin comes after the apostles, and they say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And you know what they did? They kept preaching in the name of Jesus. And when confronted about it, this was their defense, Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than men. Now, this is a very narrow exception to our general duty to obey the state. Civil disobedience is permissible only in this kind of a scenario, where the state forbids us from obeying God's word. Like in Daniel 6, where the state says, don't pray. Or it's permissible when the state tries to force us to disobey God's word. Like in Daniel 3, when the state says, bow down to our idol. Friends, when there is direct conflict between the government's laws and the chapter and verse of the Bible, then we must boldly and unequivocally choose to obey God. We must disobey the state because we cannot serve two masters. We must render ourselves body, mind, and soul to God. That is what we owe him. So, to conclude, this morning we've seen what we owe the state and what we owe God. May we be good citizens here on earth. May we be good citizens of our true citizenship in heaven. May we be loyal subjects of Christ our King. May we surrender all to him. May we love and honor him by respecting those that he has put in authority over us.